The disappearance of a 33-year-old private investigator named Taylor Wright started out as just a small story on September 18, 2017, in the Pensacola News Journal. According to Cassandra Waller, who reported Taylor missing and was described as her friend in early news reports, no one had seen Taylor since September 8th. Hurricane Irma was the big story that week. People were having to evacuate, and police and emergency responders were super busy. According to the Pensacola Police Department, Taylor was actually a police officer before she became a PI. So even though it had been a week and a half since anyone had seen her alive, police got information from people close to her that indicated that Taylor had been going through a tough time in her life, and they believed that she may have wanted to get away from it all and disappear on her own. And with her PI skills, they knew that she would know exactly how to go off the grid if she wanted to. At that time, the police department told the news journal and other media that they had pretty much ruled out foul play. But police soon found themselves dealing with crazy rumors, a love triangle, a very messy divorce, a house full of guns, and a huge amount of missing money. This case made me think a lot about the job of being a private investigator because I'm a licensed PI and when you're a private investigator, people tend to tell you their whole life story. And it's not just clients, just people in general. So you find yourself in a position of knowing secrets that no one else does. It does make you wonder, what happens when you know someone's darkest secret and that person decides they want that secret to stay buried forever? I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. So early media reports said that Taylor was living with a roommate when she went missing. I'm always interested to see exactly what the dynamics are of these relationships. And like a lot of true crime fans, I read between the lines to try to figure out what's really going on. At first, media reports were pretty vague about what the exact relationship was between Taylor and Cassandra. They just kind of indicated they knew each other, but police wouldn't confirm how they knew each other. Cassandra Waller told law enforcement that she was not just Taylor's roommate. She was her girlfriend. She said that she and Taylor had been in a romantic relationship for a few months. She described Taylor as basically the love of her life. Cassandra was the one who reported Taylor missing on September 10th. But she said since it hadn't been 72 hours yet, she had to come back, which she did on September 14th. On September 15th, Detective Gigliotti got the case. He interviewed Cassandra and she told police, and also told Dateline's Keith Morrison, that Taylor had been in the process of moving into her house, basically right before she disappeared. She said that she and Taylor had met a friend of theirs, 40-year-old Ashley MacArthur, at a restaurant in town called Twin Peaks. That was on September 7th. And at that meeting, Ashley and Taylor were talking about how they needed to run some errands the next morning, September 8th. So on that morning, Cassandra said that Ashley picked Taylor up at her house just after 10 a.m. Ashley and Cassandra left to run errands. But according to Ashley, at some point in the afternoon, Taylor took an Uber to a bar, and no one had seen her since. Police began building what we call their victimology, their profile of Taylor. They needed to figure out if she'd gone missing voluntarily 
or if something else had happened or if someone had made her disappear. As it turned out, Taylor may have had very good reasons to vanish. She was going through a very ugly court battle with her ex-husband, Jeff Wright. Taylor and Jeff were legally divorced, and Jeff lived in North Carolina, but he had taken Taylor back to court in Florida. Jeff was angry. He had accused Taylor of stealing money out of their joint bank account, money that he said was meant for their son Drake's college fund. He said Taylor was also behind on making child support payments. So they were fighting about money, but Taylor was also devastated about potentially losing custody of her son, Drake. This wasn't one of those cases where a housewife with a set daily routine went missing. Taylor was under a lot of pressure, and these kinds of cases can be very tough for law enforcement. And of course, in any case where a husband and wife are in an intense court battle, police wanted to talk to Jeff. He talked to Dateline about his relationship with Taylor. He said when he met her, he fell for her almost instantly. She was this petite woman, but she was also really tough. She did stuff like lift weights, and she was brave and down to try anything. Jeff talked about how it was her strong personality that attracted him to her. According to Dateline, Taylor had a tough life when she was a teenager. She spent time in foster care and eventually was taken in by a local family. A woman named Nancy Murchison said that Taylor had lived with her family for a while. And Nancy also said Taylor had basically two sides to her the sweet young woman, and also the tough woman that Taylor eventually became, who could defend herself and carried guns and kind of liked to live on the edge. Jeff worked for the Department of Defense. He said in court that Taylor had dreamed of a military career too. She had wanted to join the Marines, but she had injuries because of a car accident she had, so physically she just wasn't able to do it. She did end up getting a settlement from that car accident, around $250,000. And that money would be the basis for huge fights with Jeff later. Since she couldn't have a career in the Marines, Taylor decided on a career in law enforcement instead. According to Jeff's court testimony, she got an undergraduate criminal justice degree, moved to Jacksonville, and joined the City of Jacksonville Police Department in 2008. She would work for that police department on and off until 2013. In 2010, she had their son, Drake. Now, during this time, Jeff was away a lot with the military, and it seems like Taylor was getting increasingly restless. What happened between Jeff and Taylor is still kind of a mystery because obviously Taylor isn't here to tell her side of the story. But Nancy, the woman who took Taylor in as a teen, told Dateline that Taylor was shocked when Jeff told her that he wanted a divorce on their 10th anniversary. Meanwhile, Jeff told Dateline that Taylor was the one who'd wanted to end the marriage. But however that divorce started, after they split up, things got chaotic fast. Basically, Taylor seemed to believe her insurance settlement should stay her money. But the state of Florida felt differently. They apparently classified that money as marital property. And Taylor may have felt that Jeff owed her for another reason. Taylor and Jeff had gotten into a physical altercation at one point, and the police were called. Jeff had Taylor arrested on battery charges. Now, he later dropped those charges, but according to Nancy, these charges hurt Taylor and kind of followed her around, which was very damaging because Taylor was trying to work in law enforcement. Jeff Wright told the police and later testified 
that yes, at the time she disappeared, he and Taylor had been going through multiple financial and custody issues. But he insisted he had nothing to do with her disappearance. He said the last time that he saw Taylor alive was on August 13th in Jacksonville, North Carolina, where they were doing a custody exchange. He also explained a little bit about the financial background. He said that in July 2017, Taylor took $100,000 out of her and Jeff's joint accounts without permission, even though those accounts were supposed to be frozen. So the judge got very angry and told Taylor to bring $25,000 to their next court hearing, which was coming up on September 12th. The judge warned Taylor that if she didn't put the money into an escrow account, Taylor risked being found in contempt of court and potentially could face jail time. Taylor disappeared just four days before that court date. Jeff Wright told law enforcement that after Taylor disappeared, he thought that she may have taken the money and run, and that she might even be planning to kidnap their son Drake. The bottom line was, he knew that Taylor wanted two things, full custody of their son and that $100,000. So police were looking hard at Jeff Wright, but he was in the military, and so it was pretty easy for investigators to verify that he had been in North Carolina at the time when Taylor disappeared. So now detectives are turning back to Cassandra and taking a closer look at the relationship between her and Taylor. There was definitely turmoil in Taylor's life, and even though her relationship with Cassandra had been going pretty well lately, there had been issues with drug abuse and with allegations of cheating. Barbara, who described herself as one of Taylor's best friends, talked to Dateline too. She told the TV show that she didn't really know Cassandra, and they were confused because some of them had heard the name Cassandra from Taylor, but she kind of described her as a friend. So a lot of them said they were unaware that Cassandra and Taylor had been in this romantic relationship. This is one of those cases, by the way, where I watch a Dateline, and even though the story's very well done, I find myself turning it off at the end and wondering what the rest of the story is. And this was definitely the case with this. I ended up watching almost the entire trial on the Law and Crime channel on YouTube. So because it was a volatile relationship, some people were questioning Cassandra's story. They wondered, was she obsessed with Taylor? And could that obsession have led her to do something to Taylor? Cassandra said that after Ashley and Taylor left the house on September 8th, she went on with her day. She texted Taylor and got responses. Things seemed pretty normal, but then, sometime at around 11.20 or 11.30 in the morning, the text stopped. According to court records, at around 4 p.m., Cassandra texted Ashley. She wrote, quote, Are you okay? Taylor has not responded to me in hours, end quote. Side note, Cassandra described Ashley as Taylor's best friend, but she told police that she had been close to Ashley, too. So it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for her to text Ashley as well as Taylor. Ashley called Cassandra and said she had been with Taylor. They ended up doing some errands and then going to a farm out in an area called Milton. She said they decided to go ride horses there. She said Taylor had been upset about her court date. Then she said that after she and Taylor rode horses and left the farm, they went back to Ashley's house. From there, Ashley said, Taylor told her that she was going to call an Uber to go out to a bar and have a drink. This was at around 5.15 p.m. Cassandra kept getting more and more frustrated, and finally, at around 7.58 p.m. that night, Cassandra got another message from Taylor's phone, saying that she needed to think and was, quote, 
trying to get her life organized and on track, end quote. So at this point, Cassandra probably feels like she's getting blown off. She kept reaching out to Ashley. Later that night, Ashley texted Cassandra a screenshot of a text she said Taylor sent her. This one read, quote, I'm okay. I just need some time to think. The move in court is stressful. I just need a few days. I'm not doing anything bad, end quote. Now, Cassandra, as many of us would, kind of seemed to be going from worried to pissed off and then back again. She texted Taylor and said she was sad that she felt like Taylor could text Ashley, but not her. Police started asking Cassandra if she ever suspected that there had been something going on between Taylor and Ashley. Cassandra admitted that she kind of had wondered in the past if there had ever been anything romantic between the two women, but she said that Taylor denied it. Ashley denied it too. She said in an interview with police that Taylor had once asked her to have a threesome with some guy, and she had said no. Police asked Cassandra if there had been any drama recently between the two women. They asked if they had gotten into a fight, and this is where things started to get complicated, because Cassandra admitted that yes, they had gotten into a huge fight right before Taylor disappeared. And in that fight, Cassandra had accused Taylor of cheating on her and of doing drugs. And it turned out that these accusations were true because according to some of Taylor's friends, Taylor had been seeing another woman in Biloxi, Mississippi. Taylor had dated both men and women since her divorce. Cassandra said that she and Ashley had staged kind of an intervention. Dateline called it an honesty night. And at that talk, Taylor had also admitted that due to the pressure of the divorce, she had done cocaine. But she insisted that she didn't have a drug problem. She told Cassandra that she'd only done it three times. Still, this conflict seemed to be enough to plant a seed of doubt in Cassandra's mind. She would cry to the police, but then later send angry texts to Taylor. And those texts would all come out in court. She would do things like telling Taylor to return her keys and not bother coming back. Cassandra told police that she also knew that Taylor wanted that money and wanted custody of her son. It also crossed her mind that Taylor had had a master plan to disappear with the money and then maybe show up in North Carolina, grab her son, and run away. At this point, anything seemed possible. And during this time, a lot of this drama was playing out online. Someone who identified herself as Cassandra posted on WebSleuths. The person posting from Cassandra's account wrote, quote, this has been the worst thing I've ever gone through in my entire life. It is one thing to lose someone you love, but to lose them and have no answers is unfathomable. My work days are unproductive. I cry daily. I sit on my porch and watch every car that comes by, hoping she is in one. I wake up feeling empty. I don't get excited about anything anymore. All I want is to find TW." End quote. So, the bottom line was police needed to understand more about the dynamics between Taylor and Ashley and Cassandra. They searched Cassandra's house and found several guns there, including a revolver with one bullet missing. But the bottom line was that even though police did wonder about Cassandra, her phone records and her alibi checked out. Also, she was extremely cooperative and open about her relationship with Taylor. She didn't try to minimize the fact that they had had a relationship. One thing that we talk a lot about in true crime is crime scene staging. And one of the signs that someone is trying to stage something is when they kind of distance themselves from the victim. 
For example, you can see this with Scott Peterson, who said he'd already told his wife Lacey about the affair, and they kind of worked it out when police asked him about that. The point was he made it sound like it wasn't that big a deal. But Cassandra, on the other hand, was insistent from day one that Taylor was her partner and that she believed that something bad had happened to her. Also, she insisted that she was innocent throughout the entire process, and eventually, police ruled her out as a suspect. But while police were in Cassandra's house, going through Taylor's stuff, and while everyone else was focused on the guns that were getting tagged into evidence, police found a cashier's check made out to Taylor for $34,000. And they wondered why would she leave that behind? Because cashier's checks are basically like cash. Since Ashley was one of the last people who was known to have seen Taylor alive, detectives needed to talk to her too. So Detective Gigliotti, the lead investigator on the case, called Ashley on September 15th. And police say Ashley was very cooperative. She told detectives basically the same story that she told Cassandra. She said after she picked Taylor up at Cassandra's house, just after 10 a.m., they ran some errands. She repeated the story about the horse farm and about Taylor calling the Uber. Detectives went to Ashley's house on September 18th and talked to her again. Detective Gigliotti recorded the conversation, and Ashley repeated the timeline. She told police she believed Taylor didn't want to be found. In one police interview that was played in court, Ashley can be heard saying, quote, I don't believe Taylor's been harmed. I think Taylor is doing what Taylor does, but I don't know, you know? She's always come across as being tough. She's always carrying weapons, whether it's knives or guns or whatever. She's not an easy target, end quote. So now police were taking a closer look at Ashley's life, too. Ashley worked for a family business called Pensacola Automatic Amusement. Her family owned jukeboxes and games, and basically her job involved taking the quarters and money out of those machines that were placed in nearby businesses. Ashley had a background in law enforcement as well. At one point, she worked as a crime scene technician for the Escambia County Sheriff's Office, according to the Pensacola News Journal. The newspaper quoted a spokeswoman for the police department who said, quote, she worked for them from June to November 2006 and resigned voluntarily, end quote. Now, this is a bit of an odd statement. First of all, that's a very short period of time. And the way it was worded makes it seem like she may have been asked to leave. But of course, there's no way to prove that. It's a very vague statement. And in summer 2017, Ashley was facing financial pressures of her own. The owner of one of the businesses where Ashley's family's machines were placed, called the Azalea Lounge, accused Ashley of stealing money from a jukebox they owned. According to court documents, the Azalea Lounge people claimed that Ashley stole around $13,000 from them over a two-year period. In 2017, Ashley was charged with fraud and racketeering. According to the complaint, customers would pay for the games that were placed in the Azalea Lounge and they would use either a mobile app or a credit card or sometimes cash. And the people who ran the Azalea Lounge were basically saying that Ashley was only splitting the proceeds of the cash payments with them and she was just pocketing the rest. In July 2017, Ashley was supposed to meet with the people from the Azalea Lounge. They wanted to confront her about the missing money. They also wanted to see some financial records, but that meeting never happened because Ashley's family business, Pensacola Automatic Amusements, went up in flames.
Ashley told law enforcement that she had left the family business at around 10 p.m. on June 7th. And when she did, she said she didn't activate the alarm. Then at 3.35 a.m. on June 8th, several alarms went off. The alarm company called Rhonda Britt, Ashley's mother, according to court documents. Rhonda told them that it was probably a false alarm. The end result was police didn't go to the scene. The next morning at around 10 a.m., Ashley called 911 and said she saw haze and smoke marks around the front door. A part of that building was totally destroyed, including the part that held a lot of the financial records pertaining to the Azalea Lounge. At 10.45 a.m. that morning, the Azalea Lounge people say Ashley called them and said she had a personal issue and couldn't make the meeting, according to court documents. Apparently, she didn't say anything about the fire, but the Azalea Lounge's accountant said he was suspicious, so he drove by and saw the fire trucks. He immediately contacted investigators, and the state fire marshal got involved. Investigators took samples of the ashes, which allegedly showed signs of heavy petroleum distillate, which, according to court records, is an accelerant. In addition to fraud and racketeering, Ashley was charged with arson. And with that fire, investigators were also figuring out that Ashley and her mom's stories didn't seem to match. Ashley told police that after she called her mom, her mother asked her to drive by and check things out at that business. But her mother allegedly told police that she never called her daughter and told her to drive by. Police were taking a closer look at Ashley's personal relationships. Ashley married her husband, Zach, in 2014. She'd been married before and has a daughter named Savannah, according to Ashley's Aunt Laura, who did an interview with Court TV. Aunt Laura also told Court TV that Ashley had left her previous husband after she started dating Zach. Zach was a sheriff's deputy for the Escambia County Sheriff's Office. But back in 2011, he had some controversy of his own. He was accused of throwing a suspect who was handcuffed on the floor of the jail and then leaving him bleeding with no medical attention, according to Channel 3 News. He ended up being arrested on felony battery charges. The whole incident was captured on video, and you can still see it on YouTube. The state attorney's office investigated, and Zach was eventually convicted of misdemeanor battery. He was sentenced to 10 days in jail. He also got a year of probation and mandatory anger management counseling. Now, at court, Zach testified that Ashley wore the pants in the relationship when it came to the couple's finances. He said Ashley took care of their money, and basically, he was in the dark. When he was asked about the fact that Ashley had multiple bank accounts, Zach testified he didn't know anything about that. He said he just had a debit card. Occasionally, he took money out of there. Other than that, though, he kind of left everything to Ashley. For example, once Zach said he got an insurance settlement after a car accident. He testified in court that that was for around fifty dollars or $60,000. He just turned the money over to Ashley, like he always did. He said he had no idea what had happened to it. By October 2017, Taylor's ex-husband, Jeff Wright's anger, had turned to worry, and he started doing his own detective work on Facebook. He started reaching out to all of Taylor's friends on social media, including Ashley. He testified that he got a response from Ashley's account on October 16th. Ashley told Jeff that she last saw Taylor with two backpacks and a large amount of money, which again didn't seem to match the information that Ashley had given the police. Jake testified that his son Drake, who was six years old at the time, had a cell phone and used it to communicate with his mom. Jeff said that they rarely texted, and when Taylor and Drake did text, they mainly sent photos to each other. Their method of communication was talking on the phone. 
So when Drake called Taylor's phone on September 8th and 9th and didn't get an answer, for Jeff, that was very odd. Then, he said when Drake would call, he would get a text asking him to call his mom back later. This happened twice, according to Jeff, and again, this was something that was totally out of character and had never happened before. Taylor always answered her son's calls. So now two things were happening in this investigation. Police were increasingly suspicious of Ashley's stories and of Ashley in general, and they needed to find that missing money. Police asked Cassandra for Taylor's electronics, and according to Dateline, she did hand them over, but she didn't bring in Taylor's computer, at least not at first. She later told detectives that basically, after Taylor failed to come home, Cassandra went through her computer, she said, to try and find out what had happened. When she did, she said she found out a lot about Taylor that she didn't know, including a huge amount of debt that Taylor had that Cassandra didn't know about. Police were following the money trail. They subpoenaed bank records. They found out that Taylor had deposited $250,000 into her accounts, which included, investigators said, that stolen $100,000. Then she started taking out several large withdrawals. Ashley admitted that she had cashed that cashier's check for $34,000 that was made out to Taylor. She insisted this was Taylor's plan all along. She was just holding the money for her friend and she planned to give it back. In fact, Ashley told police that on September 8th, she'd been planning to run Taylor to the bank so that they could withdraw her money. But she said that after getting gas and going to the farm to ride horses, they just didn't have time to get it done. Police were asking Ashley more details about that farm in Milton where she said they went. And at the same time, they asked her if she would have any reason to be in another area in Santa Rosa County. She said she did have family out there who owned property, but she said she didn't really go to that property. In fact, when police asked for the address, she was super vague about it. She said she wasn't sure of the exact address, but she said she'd get it for him. Later, it was revealed in court that that address was somewhere on Britt Road, which is Ashley's middle name. And it was a property she'd visited a lot. So her not knowing that exact address didn't make any sense. What Ashley also didn't know was that detectives had pulled her cell phone tower records. They found that she was back in Pensacola at the time when she was supposed to be riding horses. The cell phone data also put her in that area near Britt Road, near a property that her family owned on the day that Taylor went missing. Police had something else, too. They had a video of Ashley in Home Depot on September 9th, the day after Taylor went missing. She was buying big bags of potting soil and concrete. Over the next few weeks, Ashley called police several times to ask if there were any updates on the investigation. And she was giving the police advice. She sort of played up the drug use angle. She suggested they look in Destin for Taylor or in drug treatment centers. Detectives suspected that Ashley's family farm in an area called Catonement, the location that she was so vague about, even though cell phone records showed that she was there on September 8th, could be the key to cracking this case. So they searched the area, and while they were looking, a wildlife officer from Fish and Game saw something in the woods. He moved some soil and branches aside and saw an object that was later confirmed to be a human skull. Crime scene investigators were brought in, and they discovered the body of a human female buried under concrete and potting soil. The body that was found under that stuff that looked like the material that Ashley had been buying from Home Depot on property owned by Ashley's relatives was later positively identified as Taylor Wright. Forensic testing would show that Taylor had been shot 
once in the back of the head. Now Taylor's family knew that she hadn't gone missing voluntarily. As they tried to process the shock, law enforcement weighed in with their condolences. At a press conference, Pensacola Police Department spokesman Mike Wood said, quote, Based upon what we were told, we did not immediately believe there was any foul play in the disappearance. But our detective kept plugging away at it and found inconsistencies. And soon, we had the entire division working on this case, end quote. On October 15th, more than a month after Taylor went missing, police arrested Ashley MacArthur and charged her with murder in connection with Taylor's death. She was held on a million-dollar bond. At a later hearing, the judge actually had her bail reduced to $400,000, and Ashley got the money together and posted bail. And for a couple of years, she was actually seen kind of out and about, living a semi-normal life. This enraged Taylor's family and friends, especially because, according to the Pensacola News Journal, Ashley was supposed to stay with her mom in Gulf Breeze during that time and have GPS monitoring. She allegedly broke those conditions. And Taylor's family and friends just felt that the judge was being way too easy on Ashley. In January 2019, Ashley was convicted of racketeering and organized fraud. She was acquitted on the arson charge. Her murder trial started in August of 2019. And at that trial, a lot of stuff came out. A lot about Ashley's manipulation of Taylor. One of Ashley's friends, Audrey Warren, testified that Ashley had tried to get Taylor to overdose on cocaine. Ashley told her that this would be a good way to get rid of Taylor for good. She said one night they were in the bar, and Ashley asked her how much cocaine she thought it would take for a person to overdose. Audrey said Ashley told her she planned to put cocaine in Taylor's beer. Audrey testified that on that night, she went with Ashley to a nearby strip club, where Ashley allegedly bought $250 worth of cocaine. Audrey said, quote, She said she was going to put it, meaning the cocaine, in Taylor's beer. She said this world would be better if she wasn't here. End quote. Audrey also said, by the way, that Ashley once told her that she was, quote, too small to hurt anybody, so she'd just shoot them. End quote. Audrey said that the next day after Ashley had made that comment and they'd bought the drugs, Ashley made another comment about the fact that the plan hadn't worked because Taylor had spit the beer out and told her that it tasted sour. So prosecutors were building a theory that from the time when Taylor started texting Ashley to ask for that money back, Ashley knew that she was running out of time and she was figuring out how to get rid of Taylor. So, according to the prosecution, when the poisoning plan didn't work, Ashley decided to shoot Taylor in the head. So Taylor could defend herself, but in this case, she didn't think she had any reason to. She thought she was out with a friend, and she didn't have a chance to put up a fight. At trial, Ashley's lawyers filed a motion to exclude statements and text messages from Taylor as hearsay, but the motion was denied. And there was another bizarre drama in the courtroom. While a prosecution witness was on the stand, a photo accidentally popped up, and the jury saw it for a few seconds. The photo showed Ashley hunting in the woods. She was kind of crouched down and had a shotgun in her hand. Now, the gun was not the murder weapon, but on the basis of that accident, Ashley's lawyers did ask for a mistrial. But that motion was denied, too. The case was aired on the Law and Crime Network, and most of it, including the sentencing, can still be found on YouTube. It's a very interesting case if you haven't seen it. 
And it's an interesting case, maybe because there was so much gossip and so much of what I call noise complicating the investigation. The prosecutor in this case did a really interesting thing. Instead of ignoring the rumors that Taylor did cocaine and that there was fighting between Cassandra and Taylor, the prosecutor addressed those head on in her opening statement. She didn't wait for the defense to bring it up. This is a controversial thing to do in the courtroom because once something is mentioned, the defense has the right to bring it up again. But in this case, I think it was definitely a tactic that worked. The prosecutor said, yes, Taylor had done cocaine. She had fought with Cassandra over infidelity. But the prosecutor said that had nothing to do with why Taylor was murdered. The prosecutor said this case was all about money. And she went through the timeline. After Taylor took the $100,000 out of the account she shared with Jeff, she ended up giving a lot of that money to Ashley to hold. According to court records, Ashley kept $20,000 in cash and several cashier's checks with Taylor's name on them in her house. And according to the affidavit for search warrant, Ashley deposited a check for $34,000 made out to Taylor Wright into a joint account that she, her husband Zach, and Taylor all had access to. Now, detectives compared the signatures on the checks to others that were signed by Taylor, and police have said they don't believe those signatures match. Ashley, though, was always denied forging Taylor's signature. She did admit that she deposited the checks. She was supposed to just be holding the money, but before that deposit, that joint account was overdrawn a lot. And after the money was put in, police say bank records showed a lot of transfers. The money was being sucked out of that account and put into one of Ashley's other accounts. Ashley was spending the money that she was supposed to be holding. But what Taylor didn't realize when she was entrusting her friend with this money was that Ashley had a lot of financial problems of her own. According to Ashley's friends and family, Ashley had always spent money as fast as she earned it. But this time, the walls really seemed to be closing in on her. She'd been charged with fraud. People knew that she was skimming money. She was facing jail time. And it came out in court that there was another reason why Ashley needed money that summer. She had spent that money on a guy named Brandon Beatty, a guy she was having an affair with. Brandon was the owner of Sticks Billiards, the bar where Ashley hung out and had one of her family's machines in. He testified that they met in August 2016. Shortly after he bought the business, the relationship turned sexual, and Brandon said that Ashley started pouring money into Sticks. He said that she bought supplies for him at Sam's Club. She paid the power bill. And in August 2017, she paid $8,000 cash to buy Brandon a motorcycle. Around that same time, Brandon said that she bought him a fishing yacht that, according to him, cost around $30,000. It actually came out in court that Ashley seemed to have used most of Taylor's $34,000 to buy stuff for Brandon, including the boat and the motorcycle. The prosecution seemed to indicate in some of their questioning that they believed that there could be more to this story. There could have been some type of money laundering operation going on. But whatever the case, I find myself kind of in a weird way hoping that there was more going on because to me, it is so sad that the motive for this murder could have been the fact that Ashley wanted to buy a boat and a motorcycle for some guy she was dating and According to that guy, she wasn't even the only woman he was seeing at the time. Brandon said that Ashley had mentioned Taylor to him in passing before, but it didn't sound like they were best friends. She had told him that her friend was missing. 
He said that she told him, quote, they'll never find that She's gone, end quote. But whatever her reasoning, in 2017, Taylor kept telling Ashley she needed to get her money back. She needed to put it in that escrow account, or she knew that she'd be in big trouble with the judge and could risk losing custody of her son, Drake, forever. The text messages read by the prosecutor in court told the story. Taylor had been texting Ashley, getting more and more frantic since late August. She told her they needed to go to the bank. She texted her on September 5th. We only have two more hours to get to the bank. Are you almost ready? Then again on September 6th. I'm out of time. Then finally on September 7th, she sent more texts. They read, quote, Please don't be late. They are going to put me in jail if they don't get that bank deposit by today. Waiting on you at my house. Bank closes at four. This is way too important for me not to do today. I'm under a court order or my ass will get thrown in jail. End quote. That was the last text message that was sent from Taylor to Ashley about the money. Now, Ashley's defense attorney tried to paint a picture of Ashley as just being a generous person. The attorney said that Ashley had a habit of giving money and gifts to her friends. Brandon testified that Ashley had given him several guns during the course of their relationship, for example, and she told him to kind of do whatever he wanted with them. He ended up selling a lot of them. Meanwhile, the prosecution hinted that Ashley may have been giving these guns away for other purposes, like money laundering. Whatever her reasoning, at some point, she clearly got desperate. Ashley's Aunt Laura, when she talked to Court TV, said Ashley had a habit of scamming her own family. Laura said Ashley always had an excuse as to why she couldn't pay someone, for example, to pay one of her aunt's horse boarding fees. Laura said Ashley would always have a sob story or an excuse. She would say things like she was transferring money between accounts or other excuses like that. She said that Ashley and her husband, Zach, had, quote, led a very wild, high-spending life, end quote. When she talked about Ashley and Zach, she said something else that kind of alluded to all the gossip around this case in general. She said they were, quote, a little too trashy for my blood, end quote. The bottom line was, Ashley didn't have the money. She knew that Taylor would expose her secrets. And I find myself also wondering, what else did Taylor know at that point? Because it's not like Taylor could have done much about the missing money. She had taken it out of the account without the judge's permission. So it's not like Taylor could have gone to the police. I do wonder if there's more to this story and if Taylor knew other things about Ashley. But whatever secrets there were, were buried with Taylor. The prosecutor said that when Ashley realized she couldn't pay Taylor back, she killed Taylor and buried the body near her family's property. Prosecutors said this was sort of Ashley's pattern. It wasn't a good plan. She was seen on video. She used her cell phone and it pinged in an area around her family farm. But like many red-collar criminals, Ashley knew that her fraud was about to be exposed and she just got desperate. In the same way that prosecutors said she started the fire to avoid the questions about the missing money in the Azalea Lounge. On August 30th, 2019, Ashley was found guilty of first-degree murder. And in Florida, in this county, the sentencing apparently happens at the same time. Taylor Wright's aunt, Joan Goldstein Huskins Parker, spoke up before the sentencing, even though it was a mandatory sentence, so the judge didn't have a lot of discretion. Joan said, quote, Taylor was taken too early, and she was not taken through an act of God or through illness. 
She was taken through human behavior that was very cruel. I could go on. It's just such a tragic story. But I wanted to thank you, and I'm glad that we came to this decision today. End quote. There was only one sentence that could be imposed. Life in prison with a mandatory 25 years in state prison, and that's what Ashley got. I've done some searching to see if I could give you guys some updates. I see Brandon Beattie is still on social media. Sticks Billiards Hall is closed, and he's no longer associated with the LLC he formed to run it. It appears as though he's still living in Florida with his wife and family. And even after everything, the Azalea Lounge is still standing. There's very little about Jeff Wright on social media. The latest information I could find indicates that he's remarried and lives in Alabama with his son, Drake, and his wife. Ashley is currently serving her sentence at the Lowell Correctional Institute in Ocala, Florida. Red Collar is an Audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Flowers and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?